identity. I suppose part of my identity is I have a rather weird and strange sense of humour. I remember a few years ago, I think it was over at um, Rushfields in the garden centre there, there were some friends and I suddenly stopped and said, you know, I think that's absolutely terrible. In fact, it's totally disgraceful. On top of that, it's actually cruel. I'm, I'm going to complain about that. I know the owner. I'm going to have a word with him and say, that's unacceptable. In fact, I might even write to the RSPB. Looked at me, as I have to say, what's the matter with you? I said, do you not see that sign over there? It says, self-build bird table. <laughs> Mild chuckles, because some say, that's funny, and some say, what's he talking about? But it's, that's the way that I see things. And the course we are involved in at the moment, this, this Lent, is a directive that we should begin to see things differently and see things as God sees things. The need to look at all parts of life through the multifaceted lens of the the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So today we come to this big theme. It's a wonderful theme, actually. If I really am the polyphilomenist today, filling in a gap, I'm glad it was this gap. At the end, you might not agree, but at this point in time, I'm glad it was this gap. The cross and identity. And our identity is it's either who we are, or maybe who we appear to be, and you can break that down in all kinds of ways. You probably saw in the paper the other day that one of the families whose, whose youngsters had gone off to join IS had demanded to be rehoused and given a new identity. They didn't want to be identified as who they really were. And we can understand that, of course. We also probably know people or heard of people who have been the objects of identity theft. Perhaps somebody stole their uh, their passport or their driving license or got online with some scam and got all their bank details, took over their identity, and when they tried to do something themselves, they no longer existed. I suggest that when we see with the lens of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, our intention therefore should be not to see others as they appear to be, or as we think they are, but as they really are from God's point of view. Now I've said I'm not doing a resume of the chapter. I'd be quite honest, and you can throw me out I say it. I saw the topic, I skimmed the chapter, and they said, Lord, what do you want me to share? I may be wrong, but this is what I'm going to share this evening. And I want us to look through this, this lens, this window, in three particular directions. And the first one is at God himself. It was a great joy and privilege back in 1977, I know a long time ago, and I with a couple of other folks from the church, we spent a week of seminars up at St. Michael the Belfry in York when the late David Watson was there. You had to choose two seminars. I chose drama for one, because I couldn't see the place of drama in worship, but also evangelism. And David took that, and I remember him saying, a couple of days ago, I was at a cafe talking to a man there. I guess they asked one another what they did. And when David said, well, I'm actually the, the, the vicar of St. Michael the Belfry, you know, the church in, in the cobblestones opposite the minster. The man laughed and said, well, (laughs) sorry, he said, but I don't believe in God. And David said, all right. 
Tell me, what kind of God don't you believe in? Oh, he said, I don't believe in the God who does that or allows that or doesn't do such and such. And David said, you know, that's very interesting. I don't believe in that God either. He took out his piece of paper and his pen and did the bridge of life. Two cliffs, sinful man, holy God, gap between, the bridge being the cross. See, whatever our preconceptions may be, when we push them to one side and look at God through this amazing spiritual lens that the cross actually is, we find ourselves agreeing with a man called William Rees, of whom you, don't, you know nothing. But he was the man who wrote a hymn, and in the time of the great revival in Wales of 1904, it became, it became the love song of the revival. And it wasn't just, I'll write a hymn. It came from a heart which was filled with great joy because he'd seen his God through the window of the cross. And James will have forgiven me for this. But he wrote these words. Domagariad velamorois. That, of course, is the language of heaven. So what, you say? Well, that's what we've just sung. The hymn we just sung was indeed, indeed the, the love song of the Welsh revival. Here is love, vast as the ocean. Domagariad, velamoroith. It sounds better in Welsh, doesn't it? <laughs> See, whatever else God is, God is the gospel. And thus the call of the gospel is the essential nature and activity of the Lord himself. So that, John Wes- so that Wesley could, Charles Wesley could write, amazing love. We just sing it, amazing love. Now, amazing love, he said, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That is God's identity seen to the cross. Here is love vast as the ocean. But then also I want us to look for a moment at other people, just people generally. We know that we have a fallen nature. We know we can be very critical and very judgmental sometimes about other people. We can pick up certain things and construct in our minds actually a false identity of who they really are. We can see them through the lens of our own prejudice. We put them into categories and grade them according to value and importance. Maybe linked to gender. To gender. Or race. We say we're not racist and yet we feel sometimes inside if it's a different race and different colour that we, we shouldn't feel it but we do feel that somehow... And I can express it. You know what I'm saying, don't you, from my heart? It might be education. Well, of course, yes. He's a nice chap, but he only got a, he only got a three at university, didn't he? Or a person's social standing, the people he gets on with and goes around with. A person's personality. Those who are so full of a very positive personality, we put them at the top of the pile, and those who are, apart from being in the pulpit, quiet like me, we put at the bottom. Or hairstyles. We have a last living couple of days doors from where I live, and she's a hairdresser, and you never know what colour her hair will be when she comes out. And some people look at that and say, Oh, look at that, you know, she's a really nice person. Or a taste in music. You know, that guy there, he's never really ever heard of Shostakovich. Never mind spell his name. Or clothes. I always remember at the minister's conference many years ago, it was many years ago, as you discover. And one of the ministers got up and said, you know, quite recently we've had a group of teddy boys. Hands up those who remember teddy boys. Hands up those who don't. 
they were Edwardianites in their dress. It was a fantastic dress, really. And the facial hairstyles and all that. But they were teddy boys. And they were coming to the church Sunday by Sunday on a Sunday evening. And um, yes, it had to be on a Sunday evening on a Sunday. Yeah. And, you know, they, they didn't cause any trouble. And people were not quite sure how to deal with them, but they made them welcome. After about five or six weeks, one of the members of the congregation went to the pastor. His pastor, she said, it's so nice having those young men here Sunday by Sunday, isn't it? He said, yes, it is. But she said, when are they going to start to wear Christian clothes? Maybe someone's income, maybe the car they drive, the kind of house they live in. And we categorize people. We build up our idea of that, their identity by these things. But this is not they, who they are. It's, it's not their true identity as we as Christians ought to see them. We need to be seeing people through the lens of Christ's cross. Listen to Paul, 2 Corinthians 5. <clears throat> Now, this is the inspired word of God. Listen carefully. This is what Paul says. Christ's love compels us, moves us, okay? Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, so from now on, in the light of the cross, in the light of what you said, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. I believe he was saying what we are saying. You need to look at people through the, the lens or the window of the love of God there in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, Jesus informed Nicodemus, did he not? That God loved people. No, he didn't say that. He said, God loves the world. We think it means some of the people on it, but it doesn't say that. He said, God loved the world. Whatever special love God might have for his elect, God loves the world. And those who live their lives walking upon it and exploring it, he loves them. There's not a single person, I believe, on this earth that he does not love far, far more than they can even begin to imagine. And if that's how he looks at people, even those who have no time for him at the moment, should we not see their identity as those who are to be objects of love and agape love at that, a love which is self-giving, uncompromising, the love of God? The Apostle John wrote of Jesus, he is the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. This is not the place to debate personal responsibility or particular redemption. They are two truths. I think Spurgeon said that man's responsibility and God's sovereignty are two parallel truths will meet in eternity. They cause problems, but then we're only human beings. We shouldn't be surprised. But in light of this, he's the eternal sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. Should we not see the unconverted, not as people to be criticized and rejected, but as those for whom Christ has died? Whatever exactly and specifically that means. And thus with enthusiasm to see them as men and women who are potentially children of God themselves through faith in Jesus Christ. To be honest but to be optimistic about them. To look at them through the sacrificial love of the cross. To reach out to them with the love of God which we claim and rejoice in the fact 
dwells within us. So we need to look at God through the cross, other people through the cross, but thirdly, ourselves, which is where chapter 4 comes in. Because me is important. Yes, I went to a good school. I still say, me is important. Maybe bad grammar, but it's tremendous theology. Me. I'm not I, I'm me. You're not you, you're me as far as you're concerned. For most of us, there's been a point, maybe when everything went wrong and our life crumbled about our ears, we just wondered who we were. Who am I? What I am, really? What defines who I am? If you're a fan of DCI Banks, you know that there's a new series just started. I haven't seen them properly yet, but in one of the trailers, I remember this statement which stuck in my mind. It was, the choices you make define who you are. There's a great deal of truth in that, isn't there? The choices you make define who you are. For instance, who was this, this fellow called Simon? We don't know a great deal about him. We know he's Simon from Cyrene. We're not sure. Did, was he born there? Or did he still live there? Or whatever. But we can imagine that he went to Thomas Cook's and he, he booked himself a holiday stroke pilgrimage. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. If it's free, uh, at Passover, I want to go there as well. And there he's having this tremendous long weekend, if you like. And there was a tremendous crowd. He heard the noise and he was attracted by the noise. And he wasn't going to go home and be able to say, well, something was going on. I don't know what it was. So he pushes to the crowd and he stands there at the front of the crowd as these three men come along. And one of them, obviously being beaten within an inch of his death, is struggling with his cross and he stumbles. And there as he goes to the front of the crowd, everything changed for him. It was commandeered by the Roman soldier to carry the cross of this apparently desperate criminal who needed to be executed. The Son of God, my Jesus. There are clues that suggest that Simon and Cyrene not only carried Jesus' cross, cross but he had a, a life-transforming encounter with him as well. The choices you make define who you are. If he hadn't chosen to push to the front of the crowd, but had been happy to tiptoe over, as it were, and look over their heads. If he decided to wriggle away from the soldier and hide in the crowd, then Simon who? Simon? But for 2,000 years, his identity has been the Simon who carried Christ's cross. The cross and his identity are bound up together. But how about you and me? You and me and the cross. How is me, how are we, redefined because of it? If you've been to a service of believers' baptism by total immersion, it's a tremendously powerful declaration of the gospel. It tells very clearly what God does and what man does. I've been crucified with Christ. This is what God has done. There at Calvary, don't understand it, but God says it's true. I was crucified with Christ. If I'm dead, I need to be buried. So then I'm immersed in the water. Nevertheless, I live. God's given me a new life. So if I have a new life, I can't be in the grave. I must be resurrected. So when you see what's happening, it isn't just a testimony. You know, I'm going to follow Jesus. No, it's, it's declaring what God has done in power. At the same time, 
The individual is saying in simple terms, I have decided to follow Jesus. I say, the old life is dead to me, therefore bury me. But I say, I want to embrace a new life of Jesus. Bring me from the grave in resurrection. So powerful. As I just quoted those wonderful words from the apostle writing to Galatia. I have been crucified with Christ and I no no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I want to tell you this evening, if this has happened to you, not necessarily the immersion part, but the reality which lies behind it, that the moment you put your trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that, of course, is if you did. No preacher dare presume that everyone in a congregation, even as a church going to a congregation, has come to a full knowledge of Christ. And if you haven't, then give God no rest until he opens your heart and your mind. But at the very moment, that very moment when you put your trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, the very moment you fell at his feet and said, my Lord and my God, the very moment you were reborn of the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I received a new identity. If it's a kind of passport, it's got your picture and your name, and it says right across that in burning gold letters, child of God, identity. Because that is who you are. It's the beginning. It's a process. It's a growth. What the Orthodox call a deification. We call sanctification. Growth in grace. And that fullness will come when we're ushered into the Lord's presence. See, in a sense, it doesn't matter how others identify us unless we let it matter. What matters ultimately is the identity that the living God has given to us and that by the Holy Spirit indwelling us, we begin increasingly to live out its reality. We have the doctrinal fact. We are children of God. But there's the the, the evidence in our lives that we are also the children of God. And the new identity to be seen and experienced by others that we have as we see ourselves through the cross is love. It's joy. It's peace. It's patience. It's kindness. It's goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. That, of course, is the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruits of the Spirit. The Greek word for fruit is singular. It's not say I can pick that and pick that. No, it's one fruit with these nine amazing flavors just being mingled together. And so as we grow from that point of taking on this new identity, so the fragrance of the life of Jesus should be manifest in our lives to touch the lives of other people. So allow me to close again with the word of God. So again, inspired word of God, listen, embrace it. This Dhammagariad again. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. Yes, we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. 
But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for he shall see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. What more can I say?